Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Alithri. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Professor Kavita Datla, Associate Professor of History at Mount Holyoke College, about her brilliant new book, The Language of Secular Islam, Urdu Nationalism and Colonial India, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2013. This book explores the interaction of language, nationalism, and secularism by focusing on the religious and social imaginaries of important 20th century Muslim scholars from the state of Hyderabad in colonial India, especially those associated with the institution of Usmania University. How were Urdu and Arabic mobilized for projects of nationalism by the pioneers of Usmania University? And in what ways can a history of such intellectual and social projects complicate the religion-secular binary? This is among the central questions that anchor the conceptual stakes of this important book. By effortlessly weaving together a close reading of previously unexplored primary texts with nuanced historiographical analysis of the colonial context, Datla presents an intellectually rich and exciting examination of modern Indian Muslim understandings of and engagements with the question of nationalism. In our conversation, we talked about the problem of the religion-secular binary, Hyderabad and Usmania University, the role of language in the construction of religious and national identity, translation and nationalism, and Urdu's relationship in colonial India with other languages. This book will be of great interest and benefit to scholars and students of modern Islam, nationalism, South Asia, and Muslim education. Here now is my conversation with Professor Kavita Dakla. Hello, Kavita. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm very good, Kavita. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for such an uh, outstanding and fascinating book. Uh, As I was mentioning to you before we went on air, uh, it's really intellectual history at its best. uh, The way you combine your readings of uh, textual sources with historical context of a very fascinating and a topic that um, is not often discussed. So thank you so much for such a fascinating and important book. And... uh, Our first question in New Books in Islamic Studies is uh, always biographical, where we're interested in learning more about uh, uh, the journey of our authors in terms of how they became scholars of Islam and Muslim societies. Uh, So what is your sort of broad journey and story in terms of your interest in Islam and Muslim societies and the story behind your uh, writing this particular book? Um, Great. Let me first thank you for inviting me to be on um, and for your very kind words. Um, uh, So, yeah, it's funny you should ask this question because I never actually set out to study Islam or Muslims. Um, In fact, one might say that I resisted it um, and part of me still resists it. Um, That's mostly because I wasn't convinced that Muslims in South Asia could be studied as discrete subjects or in isolation from the polities and people who surrounded them. So I really began with a place, um, the princely state of Hyderabad in South India, which is a major site, a historic site of Muslim or Islamic culture in South Asia. Um, As the period I'd be studying became more clear, the early 20th century, I became more interested in thinking about how Muslims began to make political and cultural claims for themselves as Muslims. So um, this question, this question of Muslims and their political claims in the 20th century seemed especially appropriate for the location which I was studying, Hyderabad, because in Hyderabad, Muslims were heavily represented represented as um, administrators and policymakers. So it took me slightly outside the better studied world of Muslims as religious reformers and adepts. Um, And because they were already involved in making policy and directing a state and its modernizing efforts, their 
their kind of status as political subjects was clear. Um, so it's mostly as a kind of political question in the 20th century that I became interested in studying Muslims in South Asia. Okay, so let me begin with a broad overall question, uh, which is, how would you describe the central uh, conceptual goals and objectives of this book? And I was especially struck the way in which this book goes about complicating the religion-secular binary uh, in ways that we might not be used to, and it does it in very interesting ways. Uh, so, just a broad question about what you set out to achieve in this book, uh, especially if you could comment a bit on how you go about complicating this particular binary, which would be of interest to our listeners. Sure. Um, so, this interest in kind of uh, secularism, secular education in particular, started a long time ago with me. Um, as an undergraduate, I, I read Gauri Viswanathan's Massive Conquest, which opened up a whole new world in some sense. It, In part, it did what um, what you're suggesting in your question, which is it complicated the religion-secular binary, right, by interrogating um, in that book specifically the secular claims of the colonial state. Um, but in doing that, it suggested that the project of constructing a curriculum for Indian schools also involved and revealed very particular imaginings of the relationship of, say, reader and text, right? Um, it struck me that those types of really fundamental questions about language and epistemology, literary instruction, etc., could be equally asked about Indian languages and Indian language instruction. And so... In Hyderabad, I was attempting to understand or discover how the Urdu language, um, which, uh, you know, a spoken language of South Asia by the early 20th century was clearly associated with Muslims, right? So how is this language that is clearly, under, uh, you know, understood as having some relationship to Muslims and Islam um, thought about in an era where uh, detachment from religion is conceived of as a new important public good. Um, and so for in the context of the Urdu language, I think um, one of the kind of interesting things about the scholarship on Urdu is that it's kind of presumed to be the case that um, that Urdu is a, a language um, that is inherently tied to Muslims and that Muslims utilize this language as, ma as a way to kind of shore up in some way their own religious identity. Now, there's a conflict between that kind of uh, what we've inherited in the scholarship understanding of the Urdu language as Muslim language and... Um, and the fact that Muslims are actually involved in public debates and thinking about a future in which the question of how do different religious communica uh, communities kind of interact with and live with and plan together for a future um, in ways that require something beyond their particular religious identities. Um, and so part of the argument of this book is that the Urdu language, um, the burden it bears in the 20th century is really to do, to try to do both of these things, right? To be able to stand um, as a possibility, a possibility of uh, interreligious kind of cooperation and communication at the same time that it holds open a door to a kind of Muslim past um, that should be preserved in South Asia, specifically. Um, so the kind of uh, the, the opposition, the secular religion kind of binary, um, is apparent in in all of the projects that are uh, imagined for the Urdu language. So it's it's never really 
one or the other. Um, and this is partly because religion itself comes to be understood as something different, right? Um, that it, become, it, it becomes a secular subject, both in kind of curricular or intellectual terms, um, but also in the ways that people conceive of it as a public as it's in its role in the public, right? As something that can um, be detached from the most important political questions that people have to address, right? So religion is now something that continues to exist, but does not necessarily uh, determine um, the, uh, the discussion in the public sphere. Okay. Among the most uh, conceptually profitable things that I found in this book was your emphasis on the question of how new conditions lead to new political and religious imaginaries. And I especially found it very interesting, your focus on the question of language, how uh, the the intimacy of language and how religious identities are reimagined and contested. So in that vein, uh, uh, my next question would be, so what were the major moral and epistemic challenges that the inauguration of English education uh, presented for Indian Muslims? And what was the importance of language in this new intellectual and political landscape which was introduced by the uh, induction of uh, uh, English education in the public sphere? Yeah, so from, I mean, so from the early 19th century and with, um, even with uh, Thomas Macaulay, the, the case for an English education had been made, I mean, you know, we, we all know the kind of phrases that are most often quoted quoted from Macaulay's Minute, but one of the ways he made his case for an English education had to do with um, uh, the relationship between the spread of English and uh, communication and business across the empire. So his specific reference was to South Africa and the new colonies in Australia. So, I mean, in other words, what he was, what the, the case for English education was always also about uh, uh, connecting South Asia to the larger and global British Empire. So this this raised questions then about the relationship between South Asian languages and the larger intellectual life and communication that they had historically enabled, right? So we know that it wasn't as if English was the only possible choice for uh, global communication at this point. But by the early twentieth century, what one um, by the early twentieth century, we get in South Asia what we could call the first phase in the expansion of university education. Um, so after you know the mid nineteenth century, kind of major universities in the presidency towns, it's in the early 19th century that you see provincial towns getting their own um, universities. And um, this expansion, however limited it was, of uh, university education kind of raised an additional concern, which was that of access. and the relationship of an educated public to the public sphere. So there were two questions that, I mean, let me just sum up this rambling with these two sets of questions that educators had to address in the 20th century. And um, first was, the first question was, were there, excuse me, were there intellectual, cultural, and religious traditions in the languages of South Asia that needed to be preserved and even spread, right? So that's a kind of question about um, the content or what what South Asian languages actually carried uh, with them. And the second question was about um, what would happen to the public sphere. So if uh, South Asians did not begin to provide innovative higher education in Indian languages, would that simply reproduce and mark off an English educated elite? So there's, there, I mean, with both of these questions, I think there's some resonance in the, in the present. Um, uh, the second question about an English educated elite took on a particular weight, I think, um, in the early 20th century as uh, people in South Asia became more aware of the immense challenges that faced 
modernizing societies. Um, and so these were, you know, basic challenges from um, health, from the health and welfare of populations um, to the imagined solutions to such problems, which, you know, included industrialization. Um, in the case of Hyderabad, I mean, people were thinking about industrialization. But at a more basic level, it also included um, the question of scientific research, right? How um, how do you, how do you develop? I mean, if you if we imagine, for example, um, in South Asia, people thinking about plague and disease, right? The solution clearly seemed to lie in, well, clearly, I suppose, if you weren't Gandhian, in uh, in some kind of scientific research. Um, so these challenges, these kind of um, very basic questions about uh, managing a population um, and its health and its future seemed to require the work and contribution of a larger public, right? Not just um, the small numbers of people who are receiving a higher education in English. Um, so the question, in Hyderabad at least, became how do you equip um, Indian languages to address these modern challenges, while at the same time you try to preserve something of their character. And that's, of course, a kind of uh, contestable uh, ca category, the character of these languages. Um, and so that's partly what I was trying to trace is um, how how does this modernizing agenda take shape in relation to um, notions of what the Urdu past or the South Asian past had been? Now, the, as you mentioned, the geographic focus of your book is uh, Hyderabad, and you investigate all these questions by focusing on a particular institution uh, and uh, called Usmania University. Uh, and it is on the intellectual and institutional history of this institution that this book primarily uh, focuses on. So could you tell us a bit about uh, Usmania University and its pioneers who formed the focus of uh, this book and the context of Hyderabad in which they were operating? Yes. So, um, so from the time that, um, you know, English education is being debated by the colonial state, um, there are calls from Indians themselves that um, that Indian languages should be used um, for Indian education and and for Indian higher education. Um, so, what's unique about Osmania University? A lot of those earlier kind of calls had taken various forms. Um, at Delhi College, Urdu had been used. Um, at the collegiate level. But what was unique about Osmania University um, in Hyderabad is that it was intended to provide education at the highest levels um, in every modern subject. So from its beginning, I mean, it takes a while for all of these programs to get put into place, but um, from its beginnings, every subject, chemistry to history, um, was to be taught in a spoken Indian language, in this case, the Urdu language. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, even, you know, medicine and engineering, professional degrees as well, were supposed to be um, gained through this medium of instruction. So, it, the university is found, founded in 1918 um, by the by the ruler of the princely state of Hyderabad, Osman Ali Khan, and that's how it gets its name, Osmania, after him. It's named after him. Um, but the it's kind of an immen immense undertaking um, because many of the materials that they would have used in the classroom, so that you know, from the textbooks um, onwards, they had to create. Um, and so, in the process of creating them, so the university was founded in 1918, but already in 1917, um, they're starting to recruit people who will teach at this university and, and beginning to undertake this um, process of translation of, or of creating textbooks for, for these various subjects. Um, and 
because it was such an immense undertaking, it attracted educators and literary figures um, from other parts of South Asia. So uh, the group of men who were involved in in kind of setting up this university, um, and they were all actually men um, in its early years, some of them were connected to these kind of older translation projects um, at Delhi College and, and at Aligarh. Um, others of them were writers and poets, um, and then yet yet others of them were these things. They were literary critics, or they were lexicographers. They were various things, but they were also they also became iconic pu- public figures associated with promoting the cause of the of the Urdu language in colonial India, and also subsequently. Um, so, for example, one of the figures I talk about in the book, Malvi Abdul Haq, um, also was a you know important figure for the Urdu language in, post independence in Pakistan, um, and they're involved in debates over you know Urdu versus Bengali um, discussions. But um, what's interesting about this? Um, so Hyderabad, because it's in South India, um, often doesn't get written about as part of these larger discussions of the Urdu language because it's outside of the Urdu kind of heartland, um, the Indo-Gangetic plain. Um, but once I started looking into the figures who were there, um, it's actually the fact, I mean, the fact that these these figures were so important to the history of the Urdu language means that a book about them in Hyderabad was in some sense just waiting to be written. So the, um, so the Hyderabad then, you know, becomes this attractive site because the state is investing a lot of resources into the Urdu language and all of these, uh, important people in the history of the language, um, go there. Um, but the other thing that working through the Hyderabad archives allows one to see, I think, is um, that in many of the cases where um, where people had tried to start institutions that were um, where the medium of instruction was not at the primary level. The colonial state itself was interested in primary education in Indian languages. But at higher levels, um, the colonial state was not necessarily interested in investing large res- large amounts of resources. So in some sense, in Hyderabad, you get to see the working out of this claim that had been made in other parts of South Asia, but you see it because there are resources invested in it, the debates actually have to happen and uh, decisions have to be made about how people are going to actually um, enact a vernacular system of education. Um, So working in Hyderabad allowed me to actually get more deeply involved, I think, in um, the various, um, you know, the debates that would lie on the other side of uh, of this political claim that was being made by Indians that we should have higher education in, in vernaculars and to see some of the complications of it, um, of the ways that it did and, and didn't actually work out the way that the people who uh, designed it intended. So among the most uh, instructive aspects of your book... Uh, is the way it connects uh, debates on educational reform and curriculum setting to larger debates on the question of national identity and varied imaginaries and understandings of that identity. So could you talk a bit about the range of debates and conversations about the nature of the curriculum that were going on at Ismania at the time of its founding and how those debates centered on the role of language 
in educational reform and in the construction of a national identity. You've touched on a few of these things uh, in the, the previous uh, question, but uh, I was wondering if you could further elaborate on this connection between curricular uh, reform and uh, the question of national identity and how language fits into that equation. Sure. Um, so, you know, um, so I was hoping, I mean, when I... Uh, was imagining this project before I actually did the research, I thought um, that there would be really, that Osmania might have um, created a, just a radically different curriculum from um, what was being taught at the English medium universities of India. Um, and it turned out that that wasn't actually the case. Um, there, so there, the first kind of set of, the first set of questions I think for these educators was about what to how Osmania's curriculum might be different from that of the English medium uh, universities, um, and there were some suggestions for changes. Um, so there were proposals to offer Japanese language, for example, at Osmania, and that had in part to do with this kind of thinking globally but outside of the empire. Um, question, right? So Japan had been very successful as a modernizing state. And, um, and so, you know, the question was, is Europe the only place from which we can think about um, models? Um, and related to that, there was a proposal to eliminate the study of European history. Um, but ultimately, those proposals, those kind of proposals that are in some ways designed to decenter Europe and Britain in particular don't uh, get made. I mean, they, it doesn't actually happen. Those changes, those proposed changes, and I think it's partly to maintain just the currency of Osmania degrees, um, so that you know Osmania graduates would be able to go to say Madras or Bombay and still get a job because the curriculum was very similar. And so um, the curriculum, as far as kind of the standard subjects, ends up being very similar to that of uh, English medium universities. Um, but uh, the two things that are different about Osmania is, um, is the place of religion in uh, its curriculum and, um, and the role of language. Um, so by the early 20th century, English education and English medium education was commonly accused of producing irreligious students. Uh, so students who had lost some kind of moral or ethical grounding. And so what Osmania did was um, promise some form of religious, religious education to all of its students. And it established a theology uh, department for Muslim students and required non-Sunni students, so there's a different kind of negative category, non-Sunni students, so that would include, you know, uh, Shia students, but also uh, Hindus, would take a course in ethics. Um, and Muhammad uh, Qasim Zaman, in his book, uh, Modern Islamic Thought in a Radical Age, has written about an important figure in the theology faculty at Osmania University, um, Gilani, who proposed a kind of minimalist curriculum, um, a, a minimalist Islamic curriculum that could be easily integrated with modern education of various types. Um, so in terms of content, uh, the attention to religion was important at Osmania University and became um, a subject of uh, protest, actually, by the by the 1930s. Um, but a lot of the uh, kind of burden of producing a new type of student and a new type of public um, lay in the medium of instruction that the new university was proposing. Um, and, uh, you know, here, in some ways, Hyderabad, um, you know, kind of mirrors uh, a larger uh, discussion in South Asia about language and national languages um, in the sense that 
the Urdu language is the language of government in Hyderabad. It's um, it's spoken especially as a kind of um, as the language of communication in the city itself. Um, but it is not what people are declaring on the census as their first language, right? The majority of people in Hyderabad actually speak other languages um, and a variety of them. So it's it mirrors the rest of South Asia in the sense that you have this multilingual context um, in which the state is trying to think about um, how to create a public that can speak to one another. Um, and, you know, the claim, there are two types of claims that are made. One is that, um, you know, this is the language of the state, Urdu is the language of the state, and so um, we, sh- we, we should give access to the public to this language, right? So this is very different from kind of er- earlier imperial formations where, um, you know, the language of the state is meant to be elite, right? So there's there's this one imperative to make the language of the state more common. Um, and the other is to say, well, there's no reason why, um, you know, supporting the Urdu language has to mean that other languages in the state don't also receive support of various kinds. So um, that this is actually, you know, so whatever is happening with the Urdu languages or the challenges that the Urdu language faces are exactly the same as the challenges that other languages would face. So, you know, one solution to this, um, one of these uh, administrators, Sayyid Ras Masood, um, kind of suggests to the British, why don't you start uh, Marathi University in Bombay and uh you know, Telugu University in Madras, and, uh, you know, and we would support those efforts. It's just that we can't do it for the, you know, four languages, uh, the four major languages of the state. And there's some commitment to this in terms of, um, you know, so when Andhra University is formed, um, uh, the Nizam, the ruler of Hyderabad, does kind of give quite a bit of money to the university. So there's, there's some, so there, there are two things. One is um, that it's not that Urdu is um, altogether different from these other languages, right? There are, there are problems that they all kind of share and should think about. Um, and then on the other hand, there is the, the language that they do invest in is predominantly the Urdu language. And so they have to make a claim for the Urdu language being of a special character. Um, And that has to do with the language of the state, but also the national context, right? So beyond Hyderabad, um, what these men are arguing is that Urdu should be the national language, right? That it it has a historic claim to that... um, to that space uh, in a way that Telugu or Kannada or Marathi don't necessarily, right? Those are all regional. But Urdu is, what is unique about Urdu, um, they would say, is it's that it is trans-regional, so that it is spoken in the south, in Hyderabad, but also in the Indo-Gangetic plain and also in the north, right? So there's a way that... Um, that uh, advocacy of Urdu kind of walks this thin line between saying there is something special about this language and on the other hand saying making a claim for this language is not to say that other languages can't be also promoted and uh, encouraged. I wanted to ask you a question about something that you've already touched on earlier uh, which is one of the most fascinating things you discuss in the book is the importance given to translation as a way of curating a moral public. And Usmania, as you discuss in your book, even had an active translation bureau. So I'm very curious to learn more about how the idea of translation was imagined during Usmania's early years and how was translation employed 
as part of the university's broader educational goals. Yeah, so I'm not sure if I'm going to get, I'm not sure if, um, actually, could you say more about the moral public, what you mean by the moral public? The way in which an uh, an ideal public was being imagined, uh, an Indian Muslim public was being imagined at this moment. Uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so translation is a a huge part in this after Osmania is um, created of the Hyderabad publishing world, right? So, and it had been important before then, but, you know, the kind of list of publications in Hyderabad become really translation-oriented after um, 1917. Um, And these translations, they're meant for university students, but they're also meant for a larger public. Um, So... You know, so they're producing textbooks on the one hand, but then some of this terminology is actually then being disseminated through Urdu journals that have a readership that's that lies outside of Hyderabad also, and that terminology, um, so that terminology uh, or the translation that's happening is for is is aimed at kind of creating and standardizing a vocabulary for uh, academic subjects, but also for things like arts and crafts. I mean, uh, things that clearly are linked to this kind of industrializing um, agenda. And um, what's interesting about, you know, the ways that people are, conceiving of translation um, is that, you know, first, I think there's a, you know, for, so for Molvi Abdul Haq, part of what he um, wants to say, or what he does say, actually, in his publications is that, you know, we have to start, we have, we have to start thinking of translation as a kind of professional project, right? It's not just something that oh, you happen to know a couple of languages, but there's actually a science to it, a science to thinking about um, about uh, the relationship between two or more languages. Um, so on the one hand, there's this professionalization of a role uh, that, you know, clearly had existed before. Um, but then what... Um, what translation reveals, of course, is how people think about the languages that they're working with also. And in the case of the Urdu language, it's very clear that all of these people who are working with, um, you know, are trying to translate um, many, mostly English texts, but other, but texts from other languages as well, um, Arabic and um Persian and uh, a few French texts, German, um, is that they really think that the Urdu language is immature, right? So this is an odd kind of um, process. I don't think we don't necess- we don't think about you know translation this way anymore. But the um, they really have the sense that that the Urdu language is really young, and it's it doesn't have the same possibilities yet um, as other languages. So, you know, when they compare it to Arabic, for example, they'll say, you know, Arabic is this vast language. Um, and Arabic has already had the experience of um, translation in, in a serious uh, way. Um, and uh, so, you know, the Urdu language has to be has to grow is is part of what grow in a kind of anthropomorphic almost sense, um, but that but that kind of sense of the language of that the language is immature is related to a sense that the public is also immature. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I mean, one could imagine this, and this happens, you know, obviously later in the history of the Urdu language and in other Indian vernaculars, that 
an, an attempt to grow a language would involve kind of would be a, a project to catalog um, the various dialects of it, the kind of ways it's used in village life, etc. So kind of a folk language project. But that's not what this is at Osmania University. The Osmania University project is really a didactic project, right? It's it's um, it's it it conceives of the Urdu language and the Urdu speaking public as immature, and it's trying to create a public that can understand the innovations of the modern world. So the things that modern science have made available um, without losing sight of certain traditions. Um, and those traditions were intellectual, they're linguistic, they're religious, um, but basically trying to s find a way to um, grow the public as well, um, to make the public not less Muslim or less Indian, but to make it, um, to, to find a way to preserve those things at the same time that it, uh, that the Indian public also can be part of a more global discussion of development, of how, um, of what modern science can bring to Indian society. Now, among the major arguments uh, that you make in this book and make very convincingly is you show ways in which Urdu is invested with particular secular and national ideals. And you also show that this process involved a reimagining of Urdu's relationship with other languages um, mm. in the subcontinent and beyond. So what were some of the tensions involved in how Urdu's relationship with other languages such as Hindi and English and Sanskrit and Persian was reimagined and recon uh, reconceived to emphasize its secular and national ideals. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yeah. So the um, the question. So one of the main questions for the translation bureau is um, is how do you create this terminology? So so if Osmania University wants to teach chemistry in the Urdu language, then how do you get words? How do you create words mm -hmm. in in Urdu that um, that will provide you with the technical vocabulary that you need to um, to study chemistry? And um, so the the kind of way that these translators approach this question is to say that well, clearly Urdu because it and you know because it is a lingua franca because it's a language that was used by people who spoke various languages, had always borrowed from other languages in the past. Um, and so the main languages that they consider are the ones you mentioned, Hindi, English, Sanskrit, and Persian, but also Arabic. And um, so, so the idea is that we'll take, um, you know, roots, we'll, we'll create kind of scientific roots for words from the stock of languages that um, that Urdu has historically borrowed from in the past. Um, so this immediately then creates uh, debates about which languages should be more important. So some of the people who are involved with the work of the translate uh, the translation bureau um, argue that um, Urdu should really use Persian and Arabic loan words. Right, and then adapt them to Urdu grammar. Um, and others, um, like Vahiduddin Salim and then Molvi Abdul Haq, who I've also mentioned, um, thought, yeah, we, we can use Persian and Arabic, but we really should also use Hindi words as well. Um, and so this is the kind of major fault line that they all talk about that existed. Those who thought of, you know, Persian and Arabic exclusively, and those who also wanted um, to use Hindi words. Um, all of this is, you know, I mean, this is all a kind of reimagining in the sense that, um, you know, 
I mean, even saying that the Urdu should use Hindi words is a little bit um, difficult to kind of say in the 21st century because, of course, Hindi and Urdu have the same words. I mean, they're, you know, in any case. Uh, but so that there's a kind of question about Hindi. But then there's also this question about how you think about um, Persian and Arabic. And one of the interesting things about Vahiduddin Salim, for example, is that he's really, you know, he has this very strange relationship to Arabic. Um, so on the one hand, he's saying, yes, let's use Arabic terminology. Yes, we can use some, you know, Arabic terminology. On the other hand, he's making the case, you know, which is in line with um, kind of uh, 19th century European philology that um, Arabic is actually not a very good language for science. Um, as I mean, and that argument about Arabic is, of course, connected to the argument about Hebrew and Semitic languages generally not being scientific languages in the European imagination. So, you know, so there are these vexed relationships that um, that are partly about the South Asian landscape, but also about the way that um, philology, European philology, is making sense of these languages. Um, so, um, so, so Arabic in particular is an interesting kind of case um, because, you know, of course, this is this is the uh, crux of the kind of argument that Urdu is really a Muslim language, and it's a way of Muslims for Muslims to make a kind of claim about their separateness about their Muslimness as opposed to their Indianness, right? Um, and um, the and Vahiduddin Salim and Mulvi Abdul Haq are very aware of this. They're very aware of the fact that um, you know using Arabic and Persian exclusively will make it really difficult for them to also uh, claim a national status for the Urdu language. Uh, because the roots of those languages, unlike, you know, um, uh, Hindi or Sanskrit, lay outside of South Asia geographically. So uh, in this camp of people who want to use Hindi words, um, what they're emphasizing is that Urdu has a mixed heritage and is a product of the interaction of Hindus and Muslims. So... Um, what they want to establish, in other words, is that Urdu is a national language and one that allowed, that has historically allowed diverse communities to speak to one another. Um, and for Mulvi Abdul Haq specifically, um, what this meant, or what he would go on to argue, is that because it had historically allowed this communication between, uh, across religious difference, Urdu would allow that kind of communication in the future as well. So if we, if South Asians are interested in building a common national future, then it made sense that they should look to a language that would actually allow for the bridging of differences between Hindus and Muslims. So there's there. So this discussion of terminology then is about. European philology and the scientific study of languages. So, you know, linguistics is emerging as a discipline. But it's also about a political landscape within South Asia and uh, the, the kind of growing sense that if the British were to leave, we have to make decisions about uh, the relationship between these two communities, Hindus and Muslims. And so the Urdu language for Mulvi Abdul Haq becomes a way of um, kind of recognizing uh, the contribution of Muslims to specifically Indian cultures, South Asian cultures. Um, and, you know, for him, and this is why the Urdu language is so important for him in the pre-independence period. And I think, I mean, you know, someone 
there are students who are studying him in, in, uh, and his role in Pakistan in language debates subsequently. But clearly, his attachment to Urdu starts in that crucible, in the crucible of thinking through the Hindu-Muslim question in relation to the possibility of Swaraj or independence or something of that kind. Uh, so, Kavita, as we're approaching uh, the end of our time here, uh, I was wondering if you could share with us uh, what are some of the projects that you're working on uh, these days and uh, some of the uh, uh, projects that we can expect and uh, look forward to reading from you in the coming uh, you know, months and years. Well, I'm, um, I'm working on another project on Hyderabad. I'm still uh, stuck in Hyderabad for the moment. Um, but it's a... Um, so it's a, it's a, what I'm hoping will be ultimately a book about notions of sovereignty that operated in relation to princely states over the long durée from the mid-18th century until the mid-20th century. So I'm beginning by looking at how this very particular form of colonial rule, uh, the princely state, comes into being. And then I end by considering um, what debates, um, what the debates about the princely states at independence tell us about the variety of political opinions, ambitions, and and the possibilities that actually existed, political possibilities that existed at in independence. So, I mean, the short version would be that I'm interested in um, how the political and the legal debates around uh, princely states actually generated the practices that we come to think of as essential to both the colonial state and, and the national state. The language of secular Islam, Urdu nationalism and colonial India, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2013. Kavita, thank you so much for your time, uh, for this conversation. And uh, uh, true to your name, you have... Uh, uh, presented a really enriching and engaged story here uh, in this book uh, that I uh, really benefited from reading and uh, uh, I think our listeners also uh, would have benefited from this conversation. So thank you so much for your time and for such a wonderful book. Uh, oh no, thank you. Thank you, Sherali, for asking me to come. So this was my conversation with Professor Kavita Datla about her book, The Language of Secular Islam, Urdu Nationalism and Colonial India. Please also join us next time for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Mm-hmm.